This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are going to be talking about the future of cities. And joining us today are two experts in that area. Uh, Austin Williams is a professor of practice at Kingston University, has done a tremendous amount of work in China. Uh, He is uh, currently doing this recording from London, which is where Kingston University is located, and he's a professor of architecture and landscape. Cullum Clark is director of the Bush Institute at SMU in Dallas, and he's the director of the Economic Growth Initiative there and a professor of economics at uh, at SMU. Gentlemen, welcome. Great to be with you, Marshall and Joel. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's kick off the conversation by talking about future cities. And maybe the best place to start is to really understand if there is a model or a definition of what a future city actually is. Austin. <laughs> well, sorry, I was pausing there because um, uh, I was trying to rack my brains whether there's any definition for a future city, but I, I don't think there is. I mean, um, since uh, talking prior to this podcast, uh, we were mentioning China. There's two future cities which are officially designated in China at the moment. One is Shenzhen uh, because they're building this new extended portion um, out uh, beyond Hong Kong. Uh, which is designed, designed in very commerce by NBBJ, um, American practice, um, and Tencent, one of the major uh, um, tech companies in China. So that's going on at the moment, which is like a huge linear rectangular box stuck out into the, into the water, uh, about one quarter the size of Manhattan. And then in the north of, um, north of China, just outside Beijing, to the south of Beijing, uh, you have um, Xiong'an New Area, which was given its blessing by uh, President Xi about six years ago, and now it's a vast area. Um, it's still, you know, a long way from completed, but it's uh, taking massive shape. Um, it's going to be, you know, uh, what can I say? You know, a size of a small country. I think the reforestation area, where they're actually planting new trees, is going to be the size of the Maldives. Um, if you ever worry about the Maldives, maybe you should less less worry about them. But uh, there's going to have this huge kind of uh, environmental idea, um, and, uh, and and both of them are kind of based on uh, technology, innovation, uh, new tech, uh, facial recognition, and surprisingly within the Chinese context, um, but a lot of those companies are really kind of at the fore. So that, I think that's how they're they're viewing the future city. It's kind of future technology, technology of the future, and how maybe we can uh, take advantage of it. I, ironically, the uh, the Shenzhen model is going to be a no car uh, city. That's that's their tick box of how it is a future city. Uh, in the future, we will not drive. We will walk and cycle everywhere. So you know, in some respects, it's positive. Some slightly more negative. I would suggest. So I take that one up to Marshall. Yeah, I, I'm just going to ask you, Cullum, what, you know, here if we're looking at this kind of technology-based future with a good deal of central planning, um, you are really quite familiar with the development of the urban form in the United States and especially in Texas. Are I, I'm presuming that it's a lot more laissez-faire. 
Absolutely. I would not bet in favor of central planners uh, at all when it comes to the future of, uh, of cities uh, any more than I would have bet on the utopian uh, schemes of the past to predict uh, the rise of successful cities. Uh, I would argue, uh, Marshall, that uh, the successful cities of the future will do what successful cities have always done, but subject to the technological constraints and opportunities of the time, right? So what have successful cities always done? Well, they have been, uh, they essentially exist because they help people and firms to be more innovative and productive, right? People coming together, ideas bouncing together. This is, uh, in a sense, why cities exist in some, in some basic economic sense. They also exist to provide a certain quality of life. Uh, people have come to them because they want to be there to have a better life. Uh, and they also, I think as Joel has uh, written about in a number of uh, his, his books, uh, they also uh, help people to be something, part of something larger than, than themselves. There's a, a, they, they build community, right? Uh, so um, this has always been the case going back to ancient times, uh, but it's always been subject to what the technology of the time will allow. And clearly the technology of the time uh, has progressively allowed cities to become physically more um, uh, outwardly expansive. And uh, just going back to the, uh, the, you know, the, rent, the train and the automobile and so forth. But now we're in a new world uh, where uh, digital technology is allowing still greater spread. Uh, so I think what we will uh, see is a lot of experimentation uh, with how do you do those classic things, help people and businesses to be productive and innovative, give people the quality of life that they're looking for, uh, build community, but in the context of a digitized, um, connected uh, world. And I, I think that what's happening in, uh, in a number of the big uh, metropolitan areas in Texas, but, it, but to some degree elsewhere in the United States, uh, it kind of shows the way. Uh, I'm less expert on what's happening in China, but I think what's really uh, notable about what's happening in the U.S. is there's not a single success story that can be chalked up to um, a brilliant uh, master plan by central planners. In every case, it's just plain happened. And it happened uh, uh, basically because of market forces and human preferences just acting on space, right? People going where they want to go. Typically, uh, in an increasingly knowledge-centric economy, it's been a case of uh, skilled people choosing where they want to live on all kinds of uh, grounds, some of them old, some of them quite new uh, issues, and then businesses typically uh, following. So I think that's the way it will continue to be. I, I would like to just ask something to to Austin, just because it just ran into my head, is which is what Texas has done. You know, we have to remember for the first time in American history, one state has two of the five largest metros. We've never seen that before. Dallas and Houston. Uh, this is not this is something is happening on a massive scale. And. What about China? I mean, in China, you have, I assume that cities are planned by, you know, well-educated mandarins who, you know, are thinking in, in these big sense. So you you really can't adjust the way the Dallas economy is, is doing it. And is, is there a danger in that? Well, I mean, as I was listening to Colm and to, to reinforce your point, um, I think Colm said that, um, you know, people go where they want to go. Obviously, that may be the case in Dallas, but certainly not the case in China. <laughs> you, you kind of go where you're told. Um, there's a there's a great movie if you get the chance to see it, like a documentary called "The Land of Many Palaces," which is looking at the new city in Ordos, um, the Ordos new development, and it just looks at the creation of a new city. So I think this is the first time in human history. I mean, you, you may correct me um, if I'm if I'm uh, mistaken, but the first time in human history where you kind of 
you do not organically develop a city from you know uh, from from mercantile uh, trade or stopping off at a crossroads and developing hotels and bars and you know a village into a larger place this is where you build a city you know <laughs> you build a city and then you shoehorn people into it uh, <laughs> and and the land of many palaces does that it looks at all the farming areas around orders where poor farmers are then told you know you're living in a you know, in, in, in poverty, you, your your trade is dying. If I were you, I'd move into the city, we'd give you a bright new apartment and you have to acclimatize. And you can see the traumas and the difficulty that they had to, to go through to get there. So it's very, it's a much more, um, as you can imagine, you know, much more single-minded um, activity within China. But that's the nature of China because they don't have the luxury of kind of 300 years or 250 years of organic growth. That say you know Chicago starting you know in the 1830s wherever it was with a, you know a couple of families suddenly takes 75 years to get to a million people you know China goes in Shenzhen goes from 300,000 people <laughs> and 30 years later it's 15 million right uh, that doesn't happen organically so you know if you want if, so they want to make it happen and then stabilize so at the moment they're kicking people out of Beijing kicking people out of Shanghai because it's reached their optimum level of population and they don't want to have shanty developments they're moving them out of out of the city so it's a completely different framework i think the you know the dallas i mean honestly in terms of dallas there's an element within that texas kind of um uh, cluster that where kind of there is a military uh, intervention going on there. There is a military history to actually why maybe some of those places developed in the way that they did and some of the technologies that have developed. So there is still a little bit of state interest in what's going on there, but not in the same way as China, I have to say. Yeah, and I'd just like, like to add one point and then, um, uh, you know, turn it to Marshall. But, you know, in the, we do a lot of planning in America, but the, but the planning is being done at the private level. So I, we just are releasing a report uh, on the new cities and Dallas is one place where there are a lot of them where they're master planned communities, but they're master planned by capitalists trying to reach a market. You know, Don Brand, who built Irvine or, or was run Irvine and really uh, made it into what it is today. You know, Don Brand wants to make money. <laughs> you know, yes, he wants to build a beautiful community and he, and, Marshall is a former Irvine resident himself, or inmate, if we want to say. But, <laughs> but, but, the, but the bottom line is, in the U.S., we do it, but we, we, we have, we're not saying no plan. We're just saying, but you want to plan for the market. And I think that may be the big difference, is in China, they're, they're planning for different reasons. But you know there well, is a there is a conscious um, underpinning of government support, whether you're in China or whether you're in Texas, to be able to make this development happen. Obviously, in China, you have a much greater ability to dictate exactly what's going to happen, and in the United States, you have more of an ability to lay the foundational groundwork that enables developers to be able to then work within it. Um, what? What I, I wonder about for Dallas, Cullum, is whether or not all of the work that Texas is doing as a state to try to position itself as an attractive place for investment is something that is, is being coordinated very closely with city officials or whether they just are seeming to be, you know, um, disconnected. No, I, I would not say that Texas is um, 
particularly modeling uh, close coordination between state government, private sector, and uh, city officials. On the, on the contrary, they're oftentimes at uh, loggerheads. Um, in our political system, of course, we have a, a very conservative Republican majority and Republican governor in charge of the state. Uh, in the core cities of our metropolitan areas, Dallas, as well as uh, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston, we are, you know, very much have blue state uh, mayors and uh, city councils, if you will, or, uh, you know, sort of deep blue ones. And then uh, in suburban places, of which there are a great many that are booming in, around uh, the big metropolitan areas of Texas, uh, things are more uh, purple typically, right? Um, uh, but no, there's not a lot of uh, close coordination. In fact, the people who actually run the various levels of government typically uh, wring their hands about how difficult it is to uh, coordinate anything at the public uh, sector uh, level. And the, uh, and the private sector developers, who are the ones actually making most of this uh, activity, this growth happen, um, uh, you know, they typically find dealing with the public sector quite frustrating uh, in quite a few of our cities, but nonetheless, they sort of managed to get it done anyhow. Uh, one thing that I think we've had in, um, that I think is a, a potential model for the future, we've had it in the big metropolitan areas in Texas, but I think we've had it in, in a, really around, uh, in particular, some of the other high growth sunbelt places like North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, is um, a, a very high degree of decentralized competition among municipalities. Uh, so when we talk about role of government, of course, there's basic things governments, you know, all local governments need to undertake to do. You know, we've pretty well decided they're going to educate kids, for example. Um, uh, but, on, you know, on top of that, um, in a, a system like ours where there's, gosh, just in Collin County, north of uh, Dallas, I think there's uh, roughly 30 uh, municipal jurisdictions. I may be understating it. Some of them are growing really, really fast. Um, they all feel themselves to be in an acute, co an acute competition with each other. Um, uh, and they're, so they're, they're competing on, you know, amenities of all kinds. They're trying to compete on, you know, when they work with private sector developers to uh, create a, you know, a master plan community, they're trying to compete on putting in the best, you know, parks and green space. Uh, they compete, uh, you know, brutally on uh, school quality, right? Um, every, every city trying to, every district, I should say, uh, trying to say, you know, kind of they have the best one. So that competition uh, while frustrating for the people who are in the middle of, uh, of competing, uh, actually has really useful results. Um, you know, uh, this sort of a race to the top, as it were, uh, that has been, um, I think, really, really uh, good. Now, there, there are some in a, in a competitive situation, a number of cities don't manage themselves very well, and they fall behind. Uh, we have that in Texas, and we see that all over America. There are plenty of uh, suburban places that probably could be doing a lot better if they uh, you know, tackle their educational challenges more effectively or their, their you know, um, law and order challenges. There's all kinds of uh, challenges that are going under-addressed out there. But the ones who do it well win in this uh, you, competitive you, environment. You are. Thank you for bringing that up. You're, you're leading us into an area that I really wanted to explore, which is um, for, for both of you, is it, is it possible that um, old cities can actually become future cities. You know, what I hear both of you saying is that the technology that is driving urban development for the future that everybody wants to tap into, whether it's, you know, internet of things or facial recognition or AI or whatever it happens to be gives, if, if you're new and you're looking at life from kind of a greenfield perspective, um, you have a strategic advantage in being able to actually make some of this stuff happen. But what do you do if you're Baltimore? What do you do if you're London, you know, and you have all this legacy infrastructure that you have to you have to deal with? Or or even, you know, uh, Colin lived in Japan for a while. Uh, Osaka, 
even, yeah. even to some extent, couldn't even say a city like Wuhan, which is an old industrial city. I, 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 there, you know, how I think this is a very relevant point because we have all these places in, in Europe, America, and in America, and 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 even in China and Japan that are antiquated and built on a different economy. Well, can I speak to that? I don't, or unless you'd rather go first, Austin. No, carry on, carry on. I'll, I'll follow. You know, I, I uh, work we've done at the at the Bush Institute and SMU. I think really, really does argue pretty strongly, for better or for worse. Uh, that it really just plain is easier to create a city of the future, a you know prosperous, high opportunity place where people and businesses want to be on what is in a sense a greenfield site, uh, or at least maybe where there's some nucleus from which you can build, but you can build outwards quite easily. I do think it just fundamentally is easier, uh, and I think that's pretty evident when you talk to the people managing you know leg- big legacy cities and newer cities. Not that the ones running the new cities have an easy job, but uh, they're very conscious of the fact that they can avoid a lot of uh, you know, bypass a lot of legacy issues and sort of get things a little more right in ways that the mayors of the old cities wish they could wish they could kind of rerun the tape again. Now, that said, um, uh, I don't think that we should, um, you know, uh, give up or uh, believe that it can't be done uh, because uh, legacy cities do obviously have some uh, uh, incredible strengths. They have some, um, you know, neighborhoods of great character and history and uh, uh, amenities that are, you know, like parks that are historic, arts facilities and so forth, uh, that can be, uh, you know, very, very, it's very hard for a young uh, uh, kind of upstart city to match that even over several generations. Obviously, we see that with, uh, you know, booming areas of, uh, of Austin City, of London. Um, you know, I think there are a handful of other really wonderful uh, turnaround stories. Uh, Copenhagen, as I understand it, uh, was a really struggling place in the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, and as uh, arguably a pretty successful case of, of making a whole lot of lifestyle-oriented investments that people um, appreciate. Uh, it probably helped also to be the national capital and kind of the you know unequivocal center of business in a small country. Nonetheless, they, they seem to have done a number of things right. Uh, I actually think Tokyo, uh, you mentioned that I lived in Japan, uh, and I think Tokyo is also actually, interestingly enough, a uh, you know, a case, again, benefiting from being the national capital, but uh, also that's managed to uh, renew itself around traditional, around older strengths uh, in ways that have been pretty effective. Um, it's pretty visible when you go there versus going to like Osaka or Nagoya, for example, uh, that, uh, you know, one place is doing a heck of a lot better at creating the kind of the urban uh, landscape of the future than the others are. Uh, so clearly it can be done. It's clearly about uh, uh, ma- massive, intelligent investment in quality of life uh, in ways that respect what is already there, that builds on a sense of, you know, authenticity and history that people have sh- have shown that they uh, appreciate. So it clearly, it clearly can be done. What's uh, kind of, uh, you know, disturbing and a little bit sad is that so many places that really could do that uh, just really aren't succeeding at it. I mean, I, I don't know that much about Baltimore, but, you know, p- places that obviously have, you know, Gosh, a historic harbor with a you know long and interesting waterfront. It's a beautiful city, actually. It's a beautiful, beautiful city, and then it just becomes an issue of well, are you going to make it a place where people want to be? You know, if you there's all kinds of choices cities can make where they won't make it a place where people want to be, then they won't succeed. Yeah, well, can I if I can just jump in? I mean, sure. well, it's an awful lot on the table, so I might. Uh, either flit around or lose track of um, what's being said, but excuse me. I mean, there's, 
there's that idea about building a, an urban or a city identity, and then there's an idea of building a national identity via your city, isn't there? And I think maybe some of the Asian cities are very adept at kind of reinforcing a sense of the the, the, the national um, uh, the, the sense that you're you know developing a city and you're part of the, the broader nation, which may or may not be part of the uh, rise of the Asian economies and the decline of the Western economies, the sense that, you know, um, people in the West are much more risk averse um, and see the future as a, as a negative or a, or a uh, you know, problematic place to be, uh, whereas the Asian seem to see as their future uh, and are quite um, uh, happy to anticipate it. I mean, I think in the same way that um, creative destruction is kind of quite a useful thing under capitalism, um, where, you know, those those companies that uh, don't uh, uh, perform go to the wall and that, that new industries kind of come in their place. Whether that's the same process which occurs within the urban environment, I don't really know whether, you know, it, it can take that same form. I, can, I understand that there are many dead and dying and sometimes useless and maybe um, people are willing to vacate certain towns and, and, and cities um, like... Uh, that has been going on in the north of America for a long time, but whether that can be halted, and if it is halted, whether that's done organically or whether that's done by some kind of investment and state push to maintain people in those regions, I'm not, I'm not too sure. But I was, I was only going to come back, if you don't mind, if I come back on a previous point about the whole idea about capitalism uh, or, or, sorry, um, you know, organic development of the economy versus uh, state-centered. If you see what's going on in China at the moment, one of the there's two big clusters. Um, uh, well, there's more than two, but uh, formative ones are the ones at uh, Shanghai, Kunshan, Hangzhou. Hangzhou is where uh, Alibaba is based um, uh, with uh, with um, Jack Ma uh, and Shenzhen, and that whole Guangzhou area is where Pony Ma uh, and Tencent is based. No relations, obviously. But Jack Ma, if you remember, just uh, a year ago disappeared. Um, there he was, you know, the biggest um, stock market flotation in the world um, within three months because he was basically saying that the party, the Communist Party of China, gets in the way of really creative, um, innovative capitalist investment. Um, they really don't know what they're doing and they should move aside. Um, within about a week, he disappeared uh, off the scene and was locked away for six months, being re-educated in the ways of diplomacy. Um, similarly, I mean, Tony Ma, who keeps well away from the media, uh, from 10 cents, he's just had $15 billion wiped off his share capital um, because uh, they're involved in gaming. And China is going through this big thing at the moment about trying to wean young people off gaming uh, and to get them back to be socialized and maybe kind of play a better role in society rather than stay in their bedrooms. A similar conversation that we hear in the West, but in China, they they make it happen. In the West, we complain about it. But you know what I mean? So there's this kind of idea that some, you know, once a capitalist or, a, or an entrepreneur gets too big for their boots and is trying to do something kind of quite innovative, suddenly that is a threat. The innovation itself is a, is a demonstration of autonomy. A demonstration of autonomy is a separation from the party. Uh, therefore, these things can't be allowed to happen. So you allow a little bit of that flourishing to occur, and then you have to rein it back in again. So China is in a little bit of a bind when it comes to how you can actually allow organic development to, to occur, whether that's urban or business. Uh, and it's something which they, it's a contradiction that they can't overcome. But, you know, regardless of what the priorities are, um, for <clears throat> for planners, whether they're private industry planners or whether they're public industry planners, one of the big overriding strategic themes around development is uh, climate change and protection of the environment. 
Um, one of the things that Joel and I have been studying here in, in California, for instance, is the subtle influence of climate change on regulation of all kinds. So that, you know, the idea of adapting to the future has actually got a whole lot of uh, restrictions associated with it uh, because of the stated desire to protect the environment. Are you seeing this as a theme playing out across both the country and the world? Uh, we'll start with you, Austin. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, it's becoming, I mean, uh, again, Joel mentioned before we started that he was uh, doing an article on nudge. Um, people are so confident about nudging people in the right direction now that they don't actually do it in secret anymore. They're very explicit about nudging uh, people. So those environmental conversations are very upfront. In many ways, where the way I see it playing out, I mean, in the West, it's kind of uh, very clear. You know, there's a, there's a clampdown on uh, driving, there's a clampdown on certain energy use and uh, certain businesses are now being uh, promoted and subsidized and others being uh, thrown to the dogs. Um, but what they've what they've managed to do, which is quite remarkable, really, that through this kind of moral campaign about saving the planet, whatever that might mean, uh, they've actually have managed to bring China into line. Um, so that idea that, you know, China was a runaway success and, you know, running rampant and uh, becoming slightly more dominant even than America in global trade, uh, suddenly they're back in their box again um, and they're having to cut back on heavy industry. They're having to cut back on their production forces. Even Guangzhou is losing workers rather than gaining workers. So it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenally, it, I mean, you kind of think it's such a floaty, lovely, cuddly subject, you know, uh, helping nature and everything. And then you realize the viciousness and the power behind it uh, to be able to put China, um, uh, move it away from it's kind of dynamism is quite yeah. remarkable. China's, so, yeah. China's environmental awakening is America's supply chain problem. Well, I mean, uh, in some respects, uh, I think America is, well, I know that, I know that Russia is stepping in to supplement some of um, uh, um, America, uh, China's refusal to take Australian coal. But I think America has also managed to sell some to China. You know, there's, I mean, global trade is a wonderfully mysterious thing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and uh, and the hypocrisy rules. But I, but I do reckon that, you know, given the fact that um, China is kind of building these new cities, but is then ticking the right box. I mean, the book I wrote on eco cities was predominantly to show that it's all bullshit, if you excuse my uh, language. But, you know, they just recognize that if you're going to sell yourself on a world market and encourage people to come and invest, it's one of those things you have to tick a box with. So if you can call, you know, Shanghai is now an eco city predominantly because they refused to develop on Chongming Island, which is one third of the land mass of Shanghai. So therefore they have a one third woodland, uh, tick the box of nature reserve. Um, so by not developing, you can now be seen to be a, a kind of an eco god. So, you know, it's all, it's all game playing, but uh, China's learning very fast. But at the moment, they still, you know, they still are the, the pupil uh, being, being taught by the West rather than the other way around. Well, what I'd like to think on I'd that like column. I'd like to, yeah, I would, Colin, before you answer, I mean, the question I would have is if the, the, the present ruling party, if, um, if, 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 you know, I mean, that probably assumes more cohesiveness than, than it actually exists, but the current ruling party is very much Northeast traditional urbanist thinking, lots of money for transit, lots of, um, a, a, talk about, you know, trying to stop suburban sprawl. How does a city like Dallas, which has really benefited tremendously by its 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 land use, um, 
is there any concern that the federal government is going to try to, you know, wrap their knuckles and make them sort of, you know, become more like Manhattan? Gosh, I hope not, Joel. I, I think that, um, uh, you know, there, there are a number of trends, not, not to be Pollyanna-ish, because I'll, I'll, I'll maybe say a couple of things that are less so, but there are a number of trends that, uh, among other things, that, you know, big metro areas like Dallas and Houston and so forth uh, demonstrate uh, that are ultimately good if allowed to, to, to take their course. So, for example, as we've seen this big outward expansion of the metropolitan area, this enormous growth on the particularly the northern edge uh, of the metropolitan area here, and primarily a movement to the uh, kind of the westward direction in the Houston area. Um, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of hand wringing, like, oh, that must be terrible for the environment because it means that people will be making like really, really long commutes and you know burning a whole lot of gasoline. Well, there's a couple problems with that. One is that the the jobs are moving in the direction of growth even faster than the people are, which means actually that people, as time go, goes by, are actually commuting shorter distances, not longer, in these in these big metropolitan areas. Um, and uh, you know, if, if we kind of allow things to take their natural course uh, and don't overregulate uh, land use to some degree, and I'm not saying perfectly, but to some degree, markets will actually bring workplaces and and you know residential places close enough together um, that we kind of hold down the total amount of uh, commuting, which would be generally good news on the uh, green front. Um, and then, of course, we also have a pretty powerful trend towards uh, you know changing vehicle technology. Um, uh, and that too is going to make a pretty big, uh, pretty big difference. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, there's a couple things that, that that do kind of, you know, stress me a little bit about this. Um, one, again, kind of the the top down central planning versus, uh, uh, you know, a, let's say a more decentralized approach. Um, that, you know, I, I I think that there there is a place for federal uh, regulation. But you know, clearly, we're at risk of um, of, of kind of um, not so much imposing clear, understandable rules that everyone understands, but trying some kind of giant uh, exercise in you know the federal government picking winners and subsidizing this or that company, like another Solyndra or whatever. I can't imagine that's going to be a, a a useful way to go. And then remember, Joel, I'm an economist, and as economists, we like 99% of us agree. Um, on a couple of basic principles around climate change. One is that uh, good climate policy would be putting a national uh, price on carbon, just a very simple, understand understandable tax, and then letting the market kind of play, play itself out around that. And yet we see no, no tendency towards that at all. Another basic simple point is that uh, if the trends are, as the experts uh, say, uh, the, the federal government, as well as every state and local government, should be engaged in a certain amount of adaptation policy, right? They should be, you know, thinking a little bit about how do you build the better, uh, you know, the better uh, levees if you're close to the uh, water, or how do you, uh, you know, in some form or another, um, you know, if you're in California and you're near a whole lot of very dense forest that potentially could burn your city down, uh, how do you maybe thin the forest in a little bit in a sensible way? Good forestry techniques, which apparently are not allowed in your state, Joel. Uh, uh, you know, so um, uh, lunacy needs a home too. Right. right. 
So, but we're but somehow we've we've gotten into this mode where even the most sensible adaptation policies are considered uh, either not acceptable for some kind of uh, you know reason uh, or even um, considered to be a bad thing because if we actually sensibly uh, you know lowered the risk to California cities or coastal cities in Florida or whatever uh, that that would um, somehow you know lessen the um, the urgency around doing what uh, you know activists most want to do and I don't think that's a very um, useful path. Well, that's really interesting. You talk about adaptation because as we move toward the close of our of our episode today, I wanted to talk to you about how urbanization is adapting to pandemics. You know, the the knee jerk reaction, in at least in the United States, and I presume in Europe as well, um, when COVID hit, was in essence um, de densification. Right? People, you know, obviously the the buildings are still there, but the people left. And they they moved to places that were much less dense. Um, I just wonder what your feeling is about the long term potential of all of urbanization to slow, because let's face it, we're probably going to be living with a bunch of of uh, uh, pandemics uh, for the long term future. Nobody's thinking that uh, COVID is going to be completely conquered. So I'd love your opinion on on that. Are we seeing kind of a a structural impediment to future densification here? Uh, okay, I'll chip in. Um, I think uh, <laughs> yes and no. Um, it depends how it all pans out. Oh, that's it? definitive. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I'm not the economist. Um, no, I think that. Uh, well, it's one of those things. I mean, it, it depends on the on the response and the continuation of this um, risk averse paranoia, as I might frame it, if you don't mind. That you know, every time that a variant crops up, we lock down or we shut people out or we tell people to stay home or whatever it might be. I mean, we have in London. It's taken maybe because we opened up quite early on. Um, well, I mean, late on, but quite earlier than the rest of Europe has done uh, for maybe the last four months or so. And it's taken that amount of time to to recognize that there's a certain confidence coming back to people on the streets and traveling around. Very Probably about 20% of people on the uh, underground wear masks, that there's a certain sense, you know, you can now go to a pub and it's absolutely packed. It's a really, really enjoyable, certain, you know, gone back to normal in some respects. Um, but that's been absolutely shattered in the last couple of days um, when, you know, suddenly the new variants come up and suddenly we're told we have to wear masks, we have to possibly work from home. And there's an automatic response to that, which is that I'm not going to take the risk myself. And, you know, even though they haven't told me to work from home, I will work from home. And that's now led to maybe um, offices are open maybe two days out of five, uh, or you kind of job share, things like that, which then means that all those industries which go alongside it are losing, you know, three-fifths of their business. Um, and so there's a, the, the knock-on effect is economic as well as kind of social. And But it's also, I think, philosophical, or that's probably too grand a word for it, but there's a, there's a certain sense that um, people now are seeing other people as a problem or, or a risk or a threat. Uh, and that's no way to develop an urban mindset. <laughs> the whole idea about metropolitanism is that we all get along and rub along together. Um, and uh, in some ways, we don't ask questions about each other. So I think that um, that frame of mind, if that becomes really embedded, is going to be devastating for the concept of the city and not necessarily the physical form. And I, and I think those things maybe go hand in hand. So, I mean, I don't really know how it's going to pan out, um, but it's not looking great, I have to say. Hello? Can I do that one too, Marshall? Um, 
I, you know, I would say a uh, very, very similar answer, yes and no. Um, it, I would argue that broadly defined, the, the forces uh, supporting urbanism as a way of organizing human life are far too powerful for any pandemic we've seen to stop or to overturn, in my judgment. Um, um, urbanism, cities of various, you know, we've been continually redefining what even is a city over the, over the course of history, and we're continuing to do so in ways we've talked about the last few minutes. Um, but they are, are going to remain the best way of organizing um, human effort to be productive and do useful things for each other and the best way to organize not all, but a great many uh, activities that people just like to, look, to engage in as part of a good life. Uh, I don't see that going away. On the contrary, I think history teaches that again and again, we adapt, you know, we figured out how to clean up the water supply and not have, you know, waterborne uh, pathogens be a source of, uh, you know, of, of death and disease and so forth uh, at times in the past. And we'll keep on uh, figuring this out. Um, I think we have learned some. So that's that's maybe a little bit glib, but I think it's pretty likely true. Now, that said, uh, we have seen a distaste for very high density. Uh, that has clearly driven some, something of a de-densification. Uh, I would argue that the pandemic was kind of a, uh, a nice, uh, not, not nice, but very tragic, but a, a kind of a shove uh, in a direction that we were kind of gearing up to go anyway, uh, that very high density is something that maybe like young people in a dance club like when they go out at night or something very briefly, but, but most people don't actually really want to live or work that way most of the time. Essentially, it was a mid 20th century um, uh, you know, white collar office technology that we've learned, we've learned how to improve on. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be very bullish about the very dense cores of big cities. Like can I say one other thing, Austin? And then, uh, and, but I also think another thing we've learned is uh, we've learned something from the um, certain of the, uh, the um, public policy reactions to the pandemic. Like for example, um, you know, some cities are, have gotten themselves into serious hot water uh, by, um, taking, one might say, overly draconian approaches to closing schools. Uh, and the political reaction among uh, commu and communities is very, very strong right now. Uh, so, you know, I think that we have uh, learned that uh, there's a whole lot of ways you can mismanage things in the context of a pandemic that will um, really, uh, you know, undermine the whole basis of why people want to live in your city. And we'll get them in a hurry looking uh, elsewhere. So I, I think that's part of the picture uh, uh, as well. Austin, I'm sorry. No, no, sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Colm. I was only going to add um, after you finished. I mean, and I think you were getting there, that idea about the divisive city, um, which in some ways is a contradiction in terms to what a city should be. There is a certain sense that it's very hard to determine where the divide lies, because there are many, as, as Joel was saying earlier, there are many people within the working class who seem to have accepted uh, restraints on their movement, as well as kind of uh, some of the uh, more elite class or the uh, professional class or what have you. But there's definitely the sense, you know, that um, uh, I work in architecture, you know, and so architects who have been working from home um, uh, can only work from home on the basis that ordinary working people are building, putting one brick on top of another on a construction site. So you rely on some people. You know, you can work from home provided somebody brings you a pizza on the back of a bicycle, you know. So there's a right. class conversation going on here as well, which is slightly misleading. And part of that has led to this kind of almost a Victorian, again, I hate to use the English example, but the Victorian model of unclean, people and clean people you know mm. there's a miasma mm. around there of people who are dirty and, and shouldn't be touched and have to be kept at two meter distance or 1.5 
yards, wherever it is in America. Um, and and then there's then there's us um, who are uh, legitimate to go about our business. So we have at the moment, again, I don't know when this podcast is going out, but we just had this kind of conversation in the media about Boris Johnson, the prime minister, you know, who's happily going to a Christmas party with his lovely upper class business friends. Meanwhile, at the same time, last Christmas, when he had that, uh, when he had that party, we, all of us were never allowed to even meet our families. You know, we couldn't meet one person in our family. Yet, you know, the establishment can do it, but we can't. So there's a there's an open hypocrisy, or, or it's not even called hypocrisy. It's just the way it is. One rule for them, one rule for us, and that's the way the cities may find themselves cutting. Uh, cutting in future, which I think is again is a very very dangerous uh, yeah, and, scenario. And as you as you would imagine, uh, our our podcast is on feudalism. So these class issues, and I think I'm really appreciative that you bring that up because I I think when I when I talk to various people, I have my older daughter works at Home Depot, and I'll tell you that's where I hear the real deal about people being sick, people not wanting to vaccinate. People that can't get people to come to work, you know, all sorts of things. So I think one of the big issues we're going to have to deal with, those of us who write about cities, is also to be aware of what Austin's talking about, that there are all these people. They don't they don't have you know, they can't do what we're doing right now. We can't they, we can't come from home and talk about things. They have to be the city and we have to figure out, I think, for the city to to survive. Um, as a as a unit and 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 under some form of civil order, we're going to have to figure out those people who are putting those bricks down. How do we address them? How do we make them um, engaged in things? And then obviously, how do we keep them safe? So well, anyway, on that, I, well, on that wonderful dystopic note, what I mean, I was uh, being hopeful. <laughs> I, I was trying think- to do a mitzvah. <laughs> I want to thank Cullum Clark and Austin Williams for joining us on the Feudal Future podcast. Gentlemen, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for, for being part of our of our podcast. Thanks for having us, Marshall and Joel. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Marshall. Take care.